Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Fundamental Health Podcast. I am so stoked that you are here with me. I am so stoked that we are all crushing it and doing well amidst these absolutely crazy times. And I am so stoked to, again, just share with you that I have a book. It's called The Carnivore Code. I worked my butt off for this book. It's getting amazing reviews on Amazon. It's doing so great. And it is thecarnivorecodebook.com. Please check out my book. Let me know what you think. And a little tidbit for those of you who are my podcast listeners, the book is now available on Amazon. It is on uh, on Audible, excuse me. So the book is out. It is awesome, in my opinion, my humble opinion. Please check it out. TheCarnivoreCodeBook.com. It is most of my controversial thoughts on diet and lifestyle, and very germane to this and many other conversations that I've had recently on this podcast, including how to avoid being affected badly by a respiratory virus like coronavirus. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on Amazon. Not on Amazon. Leave the book a review on Amazon. But if you like this podcast, leave me a review on iTunes because that is how we help move this all forward and more people hear this podcast if you think it is awesome and radical. I try. I try. I don't always succeed, but I try. My guest this week is definitely awesome and radical. Kirk Parsley is a medical doctor. His resume is very impressive, despite how humble he is in this podcast. You'll hear him describe himself in a very humble mannered way, but don't be fooled. He served as an undersea officer, an undersea medical officer at the Naval Special Warfare Group uh, 1 from June 2019, excuse me, 2009 to January 20, 2013. He developed and supervised the group's first sports medicine rehab center. He's a former SEAL, received his medical degree from Bethesda Uniform Services, Health Sciences University. His MD was there. He did uh, his internship at Balboa Naval Hospital and completed a Navy residency in hyperbaric and diving medicine in 2006. His philosophy is simple and similar to mine, and it is that in order to optimize health and get the most out of our bodies and minds, we must live more closely to the way we evolved as a species. And this, I think, is something that will be no foreign concept to any of you listening to this podcast. It is something that I believe, and I think it is something that all of you believe as well. So, this was an amazing conversation with Kirk. We talk about coronavirus. We talk about epidemiology. We talk about how it mirrors the flu, how it doesn't mirror the flu. We talk about the numbers in very detailed ways. We talk about transmission. We talk about infectivity. We talk about our not. We talk about so many important things, asymptomatic carrier rates, case fatality rates, where we are now, how to move forward, and how to make sense of it. I'm just so grateful I was able to have this conversation with such a level-headed, cool dude, and I hope this will help put things into perspective for all of you. If you are listening on iTunes or any podcast media, know that there's a video associated with this on YouTube, and snippets will be on my Instagram to show you many of the graphs that we are talking about in this article, which get a little bit complex at times, but refer to those if you need to, and um, I think you will get a lot out of this podcast. Let me know what you think. 
From an ancestral perspective, one of the most important things we're thinking about are circadian rhythms. And Kirk Parsley is no stranger to sleep. Um, He thinks a lot about this, and I am super stoked to be um, sponsored by Blue Blocks. So blueblocks.com. These are far and away my favorite blue light blocking glasses. They're pretty darn stylish. I have the Jasper. You've seen me wearing them in YouTube videos and on Instagram. They are really sweet glasses. And in fact, I will wear them all the time now just to have like a stylish pair of glasses around. And they have two different types. They have the blue blockers light and the full meal deal, which is like the full orange lens. So you can get a clear lens and you can get an orange lens. But what's cool about this is that I've been able to have a lot of really good conversations with the owner who's really smart, really geeked out about all the stuff. And he's looked at which wavelengths in the, both the green and the blue spectrum are the most inhibitory to melatonin production in the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the brain. And he made sure to formulate glasses that block those as much as possible. In fact, he went to rigorous scientific standards to do this. So check out blueblocks.com. I love these. They're really high quality and they're super stylish. Um, they do not look goofy at all. I love them. Have I said I love them? You can use MD at blueblocks.com for off your order. Let them know I sent you. Let me know what you think of these because I really like these blue blocking glasses. I also really like to the point of loving, definitely love my people at White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. Sixth generation, 150 years in the family. Will Harris is a pioneer. Last 20 plus years, he's been regeneratively farming at White Oak Pastures. You should see the dirt there. It is so dark brown. It is like chocolate, which means it's full of organic matter. It's full of fungal mycorrhizal networks. This is regenerative agriculture. This is what it does. It returns nutrients to the land. It is how we regenerate the land. It is the answer. It's really the best way to be stewards for the earth, and it re uh, it recapitulates. That's my favorite new word. It remembers. It recreates in the best way possible the ecosystems of the grassland prairies where animals would eat and poop and pee and die on the prairie and return their nutrients to the prairie all the time. Not monocrop agriculture, which depletes. Uh, the land of nutrients. You can use the code CarnivoreMD at White Oak Pastures for 10% off your first order as always. They have all kinds of good stuff. They are doing their best all the time to stock the best grass-finished, grass-fed, grass-finished, pasture-raised, amazing meats on the planet, organ meats. They have duck, turkey, chicken, guinea, pig. They have Iberian pork. They have... uh, Bison, uh, they don't have bison, excuse me, I just got excited. They have, I was going to say beasts, they have beef, <laughs> they have amazing stuff, and they have lamb, and it's all probably some of the best I've ever, ever had. So please check out White Oak Pastures. They're going to deliver all over the country. It's a little harder on the West Coast, but if you're in the center of the country or the East Coast or Florida, it's going to be great. If you want to get in the West Coast, you absolutely can, especially now that the temperatures are staying cool. But check out whiteoakpastures.com, support them. They are really leading the charge in regenerative agriculture. And as always, a shout out to my people at Ancestral Supplements, ancestralsupplements.com. These are the amazing men and women who are living the, they're living this. They are living the ancestral life in Houston, Texas. They are running around on driveways and dragging weights around. And uh, you guys may have seen me do the Barbarian out there in Texas in the past. I'm going to, you know, it's an amazing, incredible feat what all these people do. And they are jumping in lakes and rivers and living close to the land. And at the same time, they are reminding all of us that the, na- that the modern world 
has left out a lot of things. And one of those things is organ meats, right? You all know that no nutrition is my passion. Regenerative agriculture, no nutrition, these are my passions. And I'm so happy to support these folks at Ancestral Supplements who are putting back in what the modern world has left out. All of these incredible nutrient-rich foods all the organ meats, which so many of us have trouble getting, we're not used to eating, you can get them conveniently encapsulated in a capsule, encapsulated in a capsule, uh, and desiccated, which is low temperature dehydration, which preserves so many of the nutrients in these and all of the other good stuff in there, peptides, growth factors. There's some amazing research on this that has been done. And you can get them in a capsule and you can just swallow it. You don't have to eat an intestine if you don't want to. If you want to eat an intestine, that's amazing, but you don't have to. So, In a recent conversation with my buddy Ben Greenfield, we talked about how Ben was taking thymus and lung in the middle of coronavirus. I think that's a great idea for immune support. We know that thymus and lung are involved. Thymus is an immune gland. Another gland that people don't think of for immune support is the spleen. The spleen has so many peptides and factors that are tonic for our immune system. I think that if you were going to take a series of organs for immune system in the middle of coronavirus or any epidemic, you might do thymus, lung, and spleen, and of course, always liver. But anyway, Ancestral Supplements does all of these because they have a very wide array of these freeze-dried supplements. So check them out, ancestralsupplements.com. You can use the code SALADINOMD at their Shopify site to get 10% off. If you heard about it here, send them a message on Amazon, leave them a review, let them know I sent you, and check them out. They are putting back in what the modern world has left out. On to the podcast. I love you all. We are live. Dr. Kirk Parsley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, my friend. It is so good to connect with you. Yeah, likewise, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, we were just saying before we jumped on that I'm bummed our paths haven't crossed yet, but hopefully they will cross in person soon. And we've had similar paths. You spent a lot of time here in San Diego during your training in medicine and when you were in the Navy. But for people that may not know your background, which you know, the other thing I was saying to you before the podcast is that a lot more people need to be on your YouTube channel and a lot more people need to be following your stuff on Instagram because I really appreciated your calm and measured scientific approach to this coronavirus thing, which we're going to get into. But for people who don't know your background, tell us a little bit about how you got to be where you are today and your medical training and your military training. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, as we were discussing earlier, I, I grew up in a small town in Texas. Um, I was actually a terrible, terrible student. Uh, after four years of high school, I was a sophomore. Uh, so I got a GED, joined the Navy, wanted to go through the toughest training in the world, which I had heard was SEAL training. Yeah, well, long before the celebrity status of SEALs and nobody knew what the hell a SEAL was. Uh, in fact, when I'd come home and tell people I was a SEAL, they were like, totally confused me. What, what does that mean? Like, you know, do you work at SeaWorld or something? Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, whatever. Uh, so I, yeah, I went through SEAL training, um, you know, did that for six years, uh, got out, went to college, uh, and thought I'd be a physical therapist actually was my plan. Um, cause I'd always been into health and fitness and, you know, read a bunch of textbooks on, you know, anatomy, physiology, kinesiology, really just to make myself a better athlete. Um, you know, I've been comp- you know, competitive in sports my whole life. Uh, kind of my thing was to be physical cause I was dumb. So if you're going to be dumb, you gotta be tough. And, uh, so yeah, started working at a physical therapy clinic pretty quickly decided I didn't really want to do that for a living, uh, worked in kind of this rural healthcare Mecca where I had, you know, every kind of healthcare provider you could imagine was there from massage therapists, athletic, you know, strength and conditioning coaches, doctors, MDs, DOs, orthopedic surgeons, or like, 
you know, chiropractors, you name it. Um, and, you know, got really got to be good friends with the doctors. They sort of encouraged me to become a doctor, uh, which I thought was ridiculous. I'm like, dude, I, I didn't graduate high school. There's no way I'm getting into medical school. And, and uh, one of the wise old doctors said, well, the question isn't uh, whether you could get in. The question is, would you go if you got in? And I was like, all right, I kind of guilt me into this here. All right, so I got to go. So, so uh, yeah, when I, did, when I was applying, that's when I found out the military had their own medical school. I had really no interest in going back into the military. I'm not a very good rule-following kind of guy. Um, and fortunately, the SEAL teams don't really require a whole lot of rule-following. It's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty uh, dynamic group that, you know, kind of rewrites uh, policy and procedure as we go. Um, so anyway, uh, went and got into the military's medical school, uh, figured I would get, uh, you know, so the way the military does anything is, um, you give, you know, they give you training, you give them time. So four years of medical school meant I had to give them eight years as a doctor. And I figured I'd get back to the SEAL teams as their doctor and, you know, give something back to my community. And, um, and so I did, and that's exactly kind of what happened when, the way the military does uh, residencies, you do your first year residency and then you go out to the fleet and you become like essentially a general practitioner and that's how they keep general practitioners. <laughs> Otherwise everybody would just specialize and they wouldn't have any GPs. Um, but you can control your destiny a little bit. If you go, you can go to flight school and become a flight surgeon and work with air wings. Um, or you can go through, uh, they have a residency in hyperbarics and undersea medicine. And then if you do that, you can go work with submarines and or divers or special forces. So obviously I did that one, uh, went to the SEAL teams, was still planning on uh, going back uh, to finish an orthopedic surgery residency. And uh, actually, you know, when I got to the SEAL teams, um, you know, SEALs, don't, SEALs are not forthcoming about what's bothering them uh, because they can be disqualified by medical providers, right? Uh, and it's just like a professional athlete. The worst thing you can do is put them on a bench. But so that, I mean, they literally hide everything and try to treat themselves and go out in town and get care so that they don't, they, they don't get, a, you know, they don't risk being disqualified. But fortunately, you know, because I'd been a SEAL and I had a decent reputation as a SEAL and I'd been a SEAL recently enough to where there were still a lot of SEALs around that I'd been a SEAL with uh, and I'd been through SEAL training with and all that other stuff. And so they trusted me and they came and said, hey, let me tell you what's really going on. And not a single one of them had a disease, but they were all having sort of performance issues. They, they weren't performing where they felt they should perform. And there was no way to apply medical science to this because their, you know, their current performance was exceptional to, compared to the general population. I and mean, their expectations of performance was you know, beyond anybody, you know, any reasonable scientist's idea to say, oh, the, the average population should be able to do that. I mean, these guys didn't fit any of the normal reference ranges and codes. And so, um, so that really forced me into doing some, um, you know, really non-traditional performance health optimization, which was by and large lifestyle medicine. Um, I, one of the things I figured out early on is that a lot of their performance issue was coming from their poor quality of sleep. Um, and you know, this was endemic. I mean, I had, uh, you know, there was, it was estimated, you know, I, not scientifically, but just kind of anecdotally estimated by many that about 85% of the SEAL teams were using, uh, pre prescription sleep drugs mm. on a nightly or nearly nightly basis. Um, and then, 
you know, of course those things don't really work. And so, uh, and over time they even have the illusion of working less. So they're adding alcohol to that. So now they're, now they're doing the two worst possible things they can do for sleep. And of course, like all the restoration and the hormone reset and appetite regulation and mood and memory and like all that stuff is being improved when you sleep and these guys aren't sleeping. So of course they're having performance issues and their body composition shifting. And yeah, I mean, it, of course it makes perfect sense. But back then everybody thought I was ridiculous. I literally got laughed out of rooms all the time for saying that sleep was going to affect people's hormones and that was going to affect their, their mood and cognition and performance. And everyone's like, you're fucking ridiculous. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> but that's what they said. That's what they, I'm, using, I'm quoting there. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, they, uh, I, you know, I was able to convince them to try and it, you know, got people off sleep drugs and all that and huge performance and enhancement. And, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't just take it away their sleep drugs and alcohol and say, suck it up princess. Right. Like I had to give them something. So we worked out some supplement combinations and we did a lot of sleep hygiene and they allowed me to start lecturing around a lot about that. And the special warfare had a pretty robust, um, sort of health program, health and awareness program. And they brought in a lot of speakers. And so, uh, you know, I, I started sharing the stage with guys like, uh, you know, Rob Wolf and Chris Kresser and Mark Sisson and John Wellborn and like all those, you know, kind of the health influencers and, you know, the 2009, 10, 11 kind of uh, framework. Um, and then, you know, I, I primarily talked about health optimization, a lot to do with hormonal regulation and how that affected, you know, the prefrontal cortex and how that affected the HPTA axis and all that. Uh, and I talked a lot about that under sort of the umbrella of sleep. And I talked a lot about nutrition. Uh, and then Rob Wolf was the nutrition guy who talked a lot about sleep. So we kind of had like this bromance right away. Um, and just that just led to like a big lecture circuit and me kind of getting into this same world that you run into, you know, that you run in now. It's just like kind of all, all the same people who are kind of going, well, let's back up and just think the way, think of the way we evolved and let's use that as a baseline. <laughs> like maybe that makes sense to, to think, you know, we're part of this organism of earth instead of uh, feeling like we're some kind, we're somehow separate from it. Um, and like, and, and we're, we're meant to behave as though we're part of this earth. Right. And, and that includes eating stuff that naturally occurs on this earth and, <clears throat> you know, sleeping when the sun goes down and, you know, waking up when the sun comes up and being active and getting sunlight and like all this really revolutionary stuff. That's just, you know, our ancestors 2000 years ago didn't have an option to, to do the crap we're doing right now. And so, uh, you know, they were, they were healthier. I mean, they had infectious disease worse than we do. Like there's obviously some upside to being modern, but uh, a lot of it's, you know, preaching to the choir. I mean, a lot of, a lot of what plagues society right now is all behavioral based. And so that led me to doing, you know, a lot of lecturing and, uh, uh, in that realm. And then a lot of consulting and just really lifestyle medicine to optimize performance. And that's, you know, that's what I do now. I love it. We're totally on the same page and I can tell that you and I already have a budding bromance, just like yeah. I do with Rob Wolf and Chris Kresser and Mark yeah. and all those guys again. But yeah, I, mean, I think this is so interesting because this is, this is so relevant to today's conversation about coronavirus at, in this podcast and at large that 
most of the conversations that I have heard about pandemic preparedness for the future are centered around epidemiologic models, personal protective equipment, and the development of future vaccines. And while those are all important, I wonder if you've noticed this as well, I've seen almost no discussion in the mainstream media or in the medical media about the lifestyle factors which underlie the severity of coronavirus. And so let's just dig into that. Um, you were in the yeah. Navy. You were probably on aircraft carriers, right? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. So yeah. there was, I think that a great start to this podcast regarding coronavirus is going to be a couple of studies that came out recently about the USS Theodore Roosevelt. And what they found, and I forget exactly how big the ship was, they found 600 people who were positive on the ship. And I think it was almost 6,000 crewmen, 6,000 naval officers on the ship. I know the infection yeah, they, rate on- a crew, a crew of an aircraft carrier is in the 5,000 range, yeah. 5,000-ish yeah, yeah. people, yeah. Perfect, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I thought. Because yeah. of this crew of 5,000 on the aircraft carrier, there was a coronavirus outbreak, there was a contagion. And there were 13.5% of the people on that ship who were positive for coronavirus. I can do a screen share with an article. And this is RT-PCR. Uh, yes, this is RT-PCR, yeah. We can talk yeah. about the different tests, yeah, which is a swab, a nasal swab. And we can talk about the, what you think about the, yeah. the accuracy of that test. But 13.5% of people on the ship were positive for coronavirus. And then of that 13.5%, 60% were asymptomatic. So there's a lot of things to kind of dig into here and kind of unpack this. But when you hear that, those statistics, which actually mirror the Diamond Princess as well, which is the, right. the civilian cruise ship that had a 20% infection rate and again, 60% of the people of that 20% infection rate were asymptomatic. Right. How, what do you make of all that? I think that's quite interesting, but I would just love to get your take on, on these, these isolated contagions of coronavirus and what that means, what, how that can inform us moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can tell you, like the Diamond Princess was kind of the first, that was, that was kind of the first thing that I went to when this started to become a big deal. Because it's just such a compelling argument. I mean, we know that the, the problem with any type of RCT, yeah, I mean, is, is people go out and they do all sorts of random things with their life and it gets really hard to control for variables. But when you put people on a big, you know, in a big container and you circulate the air, you know, the air from one, you know, one cabin to another cabin to another room to another, and like everybody's being exposed if this is truly airborne, which it almost certainly is because almost every respiratory virus is airborne. It's like, you know, how, to what degree is it airborne and to what degree is it aerosolized? You know, we don't know and we will never know. We still don't really, there's still arguments about influenza. Um, but just the fact that that many people can be exposed to it uh, and in not only one have such a low infection rate, but also if you look at the, if you look at the CFR of that, you know, of, of the diamond princess. The case fatality rate. I, yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, well, this stuff doesn't kill you, man. I mean, it was like, it was such a small percentage of people. Um, and so that was, I mean, when I first started looking into that, that's when they were saying we were going to have millions of people die in America. And we still had China's data at that point, which nobody trusted a hundred percent, but I don't think anybody was thinking it was multiple orders of magnitude off as though it, what it, we probably is what we're thinking now, probably. But I was like, uh, no, like we're not like, how are we going to have, you know, with, with China having a population three times the size of, or no, more than that, six times the size of ours, right? With their population being that big. And at that point they had uh, 3,700 or 3,800 deaths or something. I'm like, 
so riddle me that, like, how are we, how are we going to have millions of people dying? Um, and so I looked at, you know, the diamond princess was really encouraging to me and I used that data a lot. And, um, you know, as we were talking about earlier, it's like, there's lots of things that matter when you're talking about uh, things that are contagious. And if we're honest, you know, like if we're intellectually honest, what we really care about is death. Right. I mean, if, if, I mean, of course people are, they're suffering that it's not death. There's morbidity to this, but if you just said, Hey, 50% of the country is going to get really sick for three weeks, we wouldn't be shutting down the world, right? Like that, that just wouldn't happen. So we're, what we're really worried about is death if we're honest. And so you know, when you start looking at the death tolls and you go, okay, well, you know, why is the death toll actually so low when you look at those numbers? And well, there's a couple of things, either one thing, the virus doesn't kill, like it's not that deadly. Like when it, once it infects you, it's not that big of a deal. That's one possibility. Also, it's pretty hard to get from one person to another. That's, you know, another, that would be another thing. Um, and when I first started looking at that, I'm going, well, if every single person would, I mean, how long were they on the Diamond Princess? They were on there for like three or four weeks, right? They got I think it was a there. few weeks. I'd have to look at the actual cruise. Yeah. But- so it's like, so they spent multiple weeks being exposed to this. And re- regardless of the airborne component, like every surface on that ship would have had the virus on it, right? So everybody's touching it and everybody's being exposed to it. So how much of a viral load does it take to actually become infected? That matters. But the other thing is it's what we alluded to earlier is the susceptibility. And not only the susceptibility of becoming infected and becoming symptom, like becoming infected is one thing, you know, the RT-PCR, uh, actually having symptoms is another thing. And then being susceptible to death, like that's a whole nother ball of wax. And so you know, when you have people wearing bandanas around their faces right now to go into stores and think that they're preventing themselves from being exposed, it's like, first of all, no way, like no chance is that, is that mattering at all? I did a video the other day where I did the math on it. And if you, if you blew up the virus to where if, if it were sitting on the table, it would be as tall as two dimes stacked on top of each other. The, the average hole in your mask that you know, you'd be able to see if you held up to the light would be eight feet by eight feet. So, you know, it's basically like how many marbles could you throw through your living room without hitting something? I was like, if you were using a bandana, right? Yeah, if you, yeah exactly. Yeah. And we can talk about these different yeah. masks. Yeah. The whole, and, and, the size and the whole of the mask versus the size of a respiratory virus, like right. a bandana is worthless. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's completely worthless. And yeah. And, and, and so, you know, so I was thinking, you know, people are out there thinking they're they're wearing this mask to protect themselves. One, the masks probably aren't that effective you know, for what they're using them for. Obviously, there are there are uses for masks. Um, but the other thing is, do you actually want to not be exposed to it? Right? If if and first of all, like how how likely is it that you're going to you're going to actually contract the illness and become infected just because you're exposed? Secondly what is your susceptibility to having disease from it? And what's your susceptibility to death? It might be a really good thing just to, you know, just to go about your life and get it whenever you get it. And maybe you develop antibodies, maybe you don't, but there's reason to think if I get exposed to it every day and I don't, I don't get any symptoms and I'm never PCR positive and I'm never antibody positive. There's reason to think that if I get exposed six months from now and a year from now and a year and a half from now, that I still may not get it, right? I mean, the susceptibility of becoming infected is part of, like, that's part of the equation. So, um, 
you know, I'm, I, I think, I think we're talking about the same stuff, but that, you know, that, those are really, that's the, really the data that came up to me or that's what the data made me think about was, you know, the susceptibility, the morbidity and mortality. And I just said, there's no way that this is going to kill millions of people. Like it just can't. And, and, and the models have been progressively adjusted down and we can talk about why that is. And, you know, right. mainstream media would claim that's due to social distancing. And we can talk about why that may or may not be the case in actuality. But what's so interesting about the Diamond Princess and about the USS Theodore Roosevelt, as you were alluding to, is that this is thousands of people, 5,000 people on the USS Theodore Roosevelt. I don't have the numbers for the exact number of people on the Diamond Princess, but I suspect it was somewhere in the it, same, you know, in the thousands. Yeah, I, I think it was like 3,800 people or something yeah. like that. that seems and they're, they're on these ships for weeks at a time. You have to imagine that essentially every single person on the USS Theodore Roosevelt got exposed to SARS-CoV-2. And every single person on the Diamond Princess got exposed to, to SARS-CoV-2, either by fomite transmission or by aerosols. Right. And, and then the first piece of the equation, which is so fascinating, and again, this is only RT-PCR, so this is reverse, reverse transcriptase, polymerase chain reaction, looking at the nasopharyngeal swab to amplify SARS-CoV-2 RNA, only 20% of people on the Diamond Princess became tested positive. If, and if we assume they're all, they're all exposed, only 20% test positive for RT-PCR, which means they have sort of an active infection. And we assume 100% accuracy of the PCR. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, yeah. And on the USS Theodore Roosevelt, only 13% of the military personnel were testing positive for RT-PCR. Right. So that's fascinating. And then the second piece of the equation, as we talked about, was that of that 20% and 13%, only 60% well, 60% were asymptomatic, only 40% were symptomatic. Right. And then taking it the next step, as you alluded to, of that 40% who were symptomatic, on the Diamond Princess, the case fatality rate was 2%, but that's skewed toward elderly people. Right. On the USS Theodore Roosevelt, the last I saw, these numbers might be a little higher, of the 600 sailors, of the 600 military personnel who were tested positive, five were hospitalized and one died. So the case fatality right. rate is 0.015% in a younger population, meaning, wow, this is very heterogeneous in terms of how many people who are exposed actually have an infection in the back of their throat. Of that, right. how many people actually get serious symptoms? <clears throat> of that, how many people actually die? It's, it's a smaller number than we've been led to believe. And as you're suggesting, an estimate of 2 million people is a little far-fetched no matter what we do. Right. And unfortunately, you know, that's what was used I, I, I try to keep well, the podcast not political, but that's what was used to, to justify a lot of decisions. Right. And if you think about it, um, really what, I mean, th that's a macro level of what we're currently doing, right? What, I mean, what is, and first of all, I, I like to, I, I think words really matter and I like to clarify the, the wording. What we're doing isn't quarantine, right? Quarantine means that you have a disease and you're known to have a disease and you're isolating to prevent the spread. If you don't have the disease, you're hiding in your house, right? So you're like, you're under house arrest. This is not quarantine. Right. Um, you know, so, but if you think about it, like everyone on those ships were, they were under house arrest, every single one of them, right? And this was the, you know, this was the overall spread rate. Um, and you know, the models, like models are always wrong, right? I mean, all the models do is they look at historic, like recent historic data and they try to predict tomorrow 
uh, based on what happened yesterday. And then the more yesterdays they have to compare, like the more accurate their models can get over time. But, you know, by definition, you hire an expert to mitigate risk, right? And so all your experts are going to be risk averse. They're like, it's their whole job is to mitigate risk. And I'll, I'll share something I pulled up this morning. And, and I'm sure a lot of, I'm sure a lot of people already, um, you know, look at this, but you know, the worldometers page, uh, you know, one thing that I like to point out is they, can you see my screen right now? Yep. We got it. Yeah. So one thing I like to point out is that they always, they always talk about this, uh, you know, the news while he's talked about 2.4 million cases, like, ah, that's not actually true, right? That's 2.4 million the RT PCR positives is where really what they're saying with that. But if you go down to the active cases, the active cases is only 1.6 million, right? Because this mm -hmm. many people have recovered. And if you look at this number has been the better the data, this number keeps going down. So if you have a mild, so you have th these people have mild conditions, meaning they really don't need medical care, right? These people have serious or critical. Well, these are the only people that might die, right? It, it's not like mild, mild conditions just drop off all of a sudden. So you have to be in this category first. By and large, right? I know there would be some exceptions. And only 20% of those people are going to die. So, like, I looked down at you know, the United States, for example, and here's something that, that doesn't get reported. Like, this serious and critical, this is, this is that same case up here, right? This is serious and critical, 3%. Well, if you look down here and you go, okay, well, out of the United States, we have 740,000 total cases. Those are PCR-positive cases, Right. Um, and out of, out of all of those, we currently have 13,500 serious or critical. And so we have 13,000 people at risk of dying really. And if you do that math, I actually did it right before we talked, uh, right before we got on, it was, uh, that ends up to be a 1.7%. So 1.7% of people will be actually can, will be hospitalized serious or critical that, I mean, that that begs the question like okay do we want to do we want to shut down society for 1.7% hospitalization of of the people who are testing positive with rt of the people who are testing positive right and if you of course you order you put orders of magnitude of how many people actually have it that haven't been tested i mean it's a, i mean it's at least you know it's at least tens of times more right it's at least 20 30 50 if it's not 100 it's definitely like 20, 30, 40 times more. I mean, that's a, it's a big number. It's a big, big number. And it is kind of a, it is kind of a strange predicament that we find ourselves in now. I'll just screen share a few of the things that we were talking about earlier. So people can look at this data if they're interested um, regarding the, let's see if this works. Okay. So this is the Diamond Princess data, transmission routes of COVID-19 virus in the Diamond Princess cruise ship. These are all pre-published studies on the MedRx IV server. Um, as many people will know, so many of the studies on coronavirus are coming out so fast that they're not able to be peer-reviewed. But nevertheless, the data is valuable. But you can see that um, they, you can find this data if you want. They had a 14-day itinerary on that ship on the Diamond Princess with the numbers that we talked about earlier. This is an article from Business Insider about the data on the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Um, it's telling me I have an ad blocker on. <laughs> Let's look at a couple other ones which are quite interesting. Just as you were saying there, 
This has perhaps been the most interesting study that's come out in the last few days from Johnny Anitas and Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford looking at seroprevalence of COVID-19. Now, this is antibodies in Santa Clara County, California. And exactly as you are suggesting, what they see is that 50 to 85 fold more than the number of confirmed cases is the seroprevalence. And so I'll read this again. The prevalence estimates represent a range between 48,000 and 81,000 people infected in Santa Clara County, California by early April, 50 to 85 fold more than the number of confirmed cases. So this is pretty striking that when they actually do now, this is antibody. So presumably they're testing IgM and IgG. Right. And, and they did, they, interestingly in this one, they tried to normalize it. So they, um, people may have heard now the words um, specificity and sensitivity. And in order to have specificity and sensitivity of a test, we have to have a gold standard to compare it to. Right. But they did, they did the best they could in that to compare to um, a sample of 37 positive and 30 negative controls at Stanford to kind of normalize their antibody testing. That is, they were looking at people they knew to be positive and people they knew to be negative at Stanford, comparing the antibody results to that and generating their data regarding sensitivity and specificity. And what they come up with is, right as you're suggesting, 50 to 85 to X more people are seropositive for the antibody, which means they have been exposed in the past, um, than are currently being estimated, at least in this county in California. Now, Maybe we should just clarify this real quickly for the listener. RT-PCR is going to look at an active infection. If you have RNA of the virus in your nasopharyngeal cavity, there's virus there. But an antibody test can tell us if you've been exposed in the past and cleared the infection. It doesn't necessarily tell us you have an active infection unless we can look at the IgM antibody, perhaps, right. for an acute, but we can't even tell then. So what we're really looking at and why the antibody, I'd be curious of your thoughts on antibody testing, but I really think antibody testing is going to really disperse a lot of the fog regarding coronavirus because we can tell, my goodness, look at how many more people have been exposed. Yeah. And, you know, Peter Atiyah had a, you know, uh, like sort of this pleading video that he put out uh, 10 days ago or something. Um, and he said, why don't we just go to New York and take 3,000, randomly select 3,000 people from each borough and do IgM, IgG testing on these people? And let's find out you know, what the actual prevalence is. And then if we, if we have some idea of what the prevalence is, then we, one, we can come up with a much better r naught, And then next, we can also come up with a much better CFR. And then if the CFR and the r naught don't justify what we're doing, let's move about, like, let's get going. Uh, but if, you know, if it turns out that hardly anybody's been exposed to this, then crap, like we're, we're we could be in some big trouble here. So let's, well, let's be really disciplined about what we're doing and let's really think things through before we take any uh, actions. And, and I, I mean, I, I, I think it's you know, a pretty intuitive approach. I'm sure there's political economic reasons as to why that, that wasn't done, but you know, Santa Clara came up with something pretty damn close. They didn't, we know they didn't, they don't have the prevalence of New York city, but we also know that given their data, that their, their prevalence was a whole lot higher than we thought it was. I mean, a whole lot higher than we thought it was. And so that's, you know, that's again, that, uh, you know, what I've, what I've been saying all along is, 
you know, there are people out there who are saying this whole thing is a hoax and COVID doesn't exist and it's all G, you know, five G and exosomes. And I'm like, yeah. uh, that's, that's a bridge too far for me. You know, me too. Um, me too. Let's just be but, very clear about that. But I also don't think this is, this is the virus that's going to wipe out all of mankind. So like there's, there's something in between there where, where I'm rolling out. And so there's definitely something happening. There's definitely a virus that's going around that's killing people. The question that I keep bringing up is, do we know for a fact that this is killing people who wouldn't otherwise be dying? So there's a lot of problems in how the numbers are being collected for death rates. And we, we've all heard about that, presumed cases and all this other stuff. But the other thing that isn't, I mean, there's a couple of things that aren't really being talked about is, you know, and, and I've seen a little bit about this, the overall death rate. Um, but if you look at, you know, the death rate from specific illnesses that we know kill people, like we know what the top three killers are in America every single year. And, you know, the cardiovascular deaths are dropping, you know, a lot. And, uh, um, you know, uh, res you know, respiratory influenza like illnesses, as they call it, that's plummeted. That's dropped off the clock. Like if you don't consider COVID, there essentially aren't any influenza like illnesses killing people right now, which is unheard of. I mean, we like, we know we were having a bad flu season and there's a really there's a really good chance if you follow the, the data from our current flu season, there's a really good chance that that number could have gone up to something really bad, like 60,000 people. And we had almost 30,000 before we really locked down on this. Unquestionably, a lot of those 30,000 were probably already coronavirus and we just weren't testing for it. But how many of the people who have died were going to die from that anyway? The, the, best predictive independent variable for dying from COVID is age. That's just all there is to it, man. And it's a, and it's unfortunate, but that's also the best predictor of death from all cause, all morbidity, all mortality. The older you get, that's what, that's what old means is that you become less resilient. You become less capable of fighting off entropy and you become less capable of fighting off disease. If you get in a car, if you get in a really bad car accident at 80 years old versus 20 years old, astronomically different risk of morbidity and mortality from that, right? Same thing if you fall, same thing if you get the flu, same thing if you, anything, you're more likely to die the older you get. So, I mean, that number needs to be tempered. And then the other thing I think that needs to be tempered, I, I, don't, I don't think as much for the CFR. Now that I would say it weighs into the CFR a little bit um, because we know that early on when they were just throwing everybody on ventilators that 80% of everybody went on a ventilator was dying. Um, and they were just putting, they were just putting people on there as soon as they started struggling. Right. Um, and so if you think about the nocebo effect, which nobody's really talking about, well, if I think that because I have a cough right now, I might die. I'm going to have a way worse. Like there's a really good chance, like the same as placebo. There's about a 30% chance that my, my experience of what of my current illness is going to be a lot worse because I believe that this thing out there, this you know, villainous coronavirus is going to kill me because I'm coughing right now. Now, I'm not saying it's all completely made up and then there's, there's no physiologic changes, but we know if early on they were just saying, hey, as soon as you look like you're struggling, we're putting you on a vent. And that is maybe the worst thing to do, right? We'll find out. I'm sure there's going to be some data 
in six months or a year that where they're going to say, actually, we, when we inflated that cuff, we were like isolating this COVID inside the lungs. And man, we were creating this pressure, which was like porn for this virus. And man, it was just expanding and going so much worse. Uh, and not to blame anybody. Everybody was doing the best they could. Uh, nobody, nobody knew much about it. And we still don't know much about it. That's the other thing that I continually point out. We don't know crap. I mean, we don't know crap about the flu. We don't know crap about a lot of stuff, man. Uh, there's a cost for every single thing you do. And we, and we don't like, there's a cost for every alcoholic drink. There's a cost for like anything. There's a cost for sunbathing. There's a co- like there's, there are consequences for every action. And in, and part of life, like part of the contract of life is death. One, it's a hundred percent fatal. Nobody gets out alive. Every single person is going to die and we're risking death every day we live every day. We do anything. There's a risk. And so that whole question just keeps coming back. And I, I'm not a politician. I don't write policy and I'm glad I don't have to make these decisions, but you know, I think there's a very, there's very little scientific evidence leading to the current policies and the current beliefs. Um, and we're just assuming the worst, which is what people do when they're scared you look for the worst and that's how we're wired. Well, I think, yeah, again, without getting too political, I think that this is an election year and I, you know, I think that a lot of these decisions are being made with political ends in mind. Sure. And, and um, this has become more of a political issue than a medical issue per se that you and neither you nor I, is trying to invalidate the suffering of anyone with coronavirus, anyone's family with coronavirus, or mitigate or minimize the number of deaths by any cause. You know, it's tragic that, it's tragic that hundreds of thousands of people per year die from diabetes. It's tragic that (laughs) hundreds of thousands of people die from uh, cardiovascular disease. And it's tragic that tens of thousands of people in the US and across the world will die from coronavirus. And we have to be able to look at those objectively and put them in context so that we can move forward in an intelligent way as humans and understand how this compares to other things that might harm us. Right. 40,000 people a year in the United States die in car accidents, but that doesn't prevent us from driving a car every day. Again, again, I don't want to make this too political, but I love what you say there that living carries with it the risk of death. Every time I go surfing, I risk having a close encounter with a shark. <laughs> right. And I well, accept that risk. <laughs> right. And and if you think about the automobiles, and so like here, here's, uh, anyway, I had a conversation with another doctor and he put it really well. Um, I think he said, we, we feel like, you know, there's a, there's a perception of control of risk. Right. Um, and when the more information we know, so when we look at automobile accidents, we know that people die every year, but we do what we can to mitigate that, right? So the government does their part. There's political play in that, right? Where they say, well, all car manufacturers have to put airbags in their cars and they have to put seat belts in their cars and they have to pass crash tests. And then individuals have to get license and instruction and they have to drive the speed limit. And if they drink and drive, they go to jail. And if they text and drive, they get tickets. If they drive over the speed limit, they get tickets. If they run red lights, they get tickets. And then we don't let those people drive anymore. And so we're controlling the risk. But we're not, if, if you wanted to flip this to, I think something analogous to what we're doing right now is to say, all right, we're not accepting any car deaths from now on. So the speed limit is going to be 10 miles an hour 
everywhere. You have to wear a helmet when you drive and, you know, like whatever, like you could just go crazy with it and you could really shut down the economy. You could make automobiles completely useless because you've put so many restrictions on them. So that's the area we have to be cautious that we aren't going too far. Like uh, I know the mayor of New York said that he would keep New York shut down for 18 months to prevent one death. Well, he needs to, he needs to be elected, uh, you know, he needs to be in his exit office if that's what he believes because people, people are going to die and there's no way to stop that. So, um, that's a, that's a political move. That's purely, that's just a political move appealing to the, to the, to the sentiments, you know, people who are like, we don't want anyone to die. And of course, but that's not realistic. Right. Of course. I mean, if you said that you want people to die, you're an evil person, right? Like none of us want anyone to die, but we're all completely aware that people do die. Let me, let me throw up this one too. Um, When we, here's another one that I've talked about. Yeah. If you could share the flu data, this is really interesting because I want to, we, you, you, mentioned this, but I really want to drill down on this because I think this is one of the points that you made on your videos that I thought was so insightful. Thank you. And so you, you had showed data that, that, that pneumonia deaths were actually very far down. And I think when people hear this idea that people who are dying from coronavirus might have died from someone else, from something else, they see that as callous, but we're not meaning this to be callous. We're just looking at this from a numbers basis. But when you really look at the numbers, it's pretty interesting what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, and, and like you said, I'm not doing this to be dismissive or glib. I'm I'm just saying, yeah, let let's let's be aware of what we do know, and let's let's implement that into this fear that everybody has. And you know, the the unknown is, you know causes fear, and that's how we're wired, and that's why it's supposed to happen. Um, but you know, so something that I've been pointing out, and, and this isn't death. So this is you know, these are positive tests, right? So we're talking about the same type of swab, and we look at uh, over the course of the weeks and the flu season goes from the 40th week of last year up until obviously the 39th week of this year. And you can see we're at week 15 right now, um, of Jan- uh, of 2020. And if you look at all these positive tests, obviously these, these tests carry with the morbidity and mortality. Well, we essentially don't have any right now, right? I mean, it, it's, it's insignificant how many people we have with influenza illness, but if you look back to the H1N1 epidemic, what we saw was a normal flu season. It essentially went away. And then we had this resurgent. It didn't have seasonality. The reason, you know, the reason viruses, the reason we believe viruses have seasonality um, isn't, isn't so much because the virus says, hey, it's summertime, it's time to shut down. It's because we like one, we don't interact the same. And so there, you know, it, it's less, uh, there, there's less exposure. But the other thing is, you know, our immune systems haven't seen this before. So exposure, um, you know, exposure in the summer uh, with even a smaller or less virulent thing is more likely to, to lead to an infection. And so these are, again, self-selected. This is, has a severity bias. People who go into the doctor and say, uh, I feel so sick, I want medical care. Um, so we had this season, a, sort of a normal flu season, and if you look at any other flu season, this compares, and then it drops off somewhere around week 15. It just kind of goes away, and then it comes back up again around the 40s, and that's why that's where the flu season lies, to catch the peak. Um, and then we had this resurgent, and if you look at this orange and yellow, that's this graph is actually showing that as well. 
uh, that's H1N1 in the orange, which was, that was the, the swine flu. And then the yellow is probably H1N1, but it's just an A, influenza A that wasn't subtype. So if you look at that and you go, well, we essentially had two flu seasons. And that's in why H1N1 was so bad. And this was a 08, 09. And then if you look at 09, 10, you know, H1N1 kind of had a double peak, what, they call this, what they're calling the second wave. And this was actually a higher wave if you had 13,000 positive tests in this one week. And then our normal flu season essentially didn't exist because the normal flu season starts around week 40 again and starts going up and it usually peaks around here. And we, we really didn't have any peak. Now, ostensibly, this is sort of our first foray with H1N1. So, you know, how deadly is this thing going to be? Like it's killing people in the summer. It has a second wave. Like, my God, this is just, this is going to wipe us out. It's going to be something completely different than the flu season. But then when you just start going up randomly and looking at other flu seasons, well, here you have a normal flu season peaking where they kind of always peak. And this is a pretty bad flu season. In fact, let's look at 17, 18. That's when we had about 16,000 deaths. So that was a, that was a big flu season. But look at this orange, like this is H1N1 again. So these are H1N1, that, but it doesn't have that second blip. It's going into the seasonality of uh, 2018-19. Look at all that H1N1, all that orange, that's H1N1. It didn't exist in two, before 2009. And then we have this season here, a ton of H1N1. So the point of all that is that what seems to happen is that there are people who are susceptible to the illness. There are people who are susceptible to morbidity and mortality. And it's pretty likely that those, that those are the people that are susceptible. That's kind of the thinning of the herd that exists in every form of life. And it's going to reoccur every single year. And it's really, really, really likely that COVID is going to be wrapped into that normal curve, even if we never have a vaccine even if we never come up with effective treatment, it's probably just going to dominate the influenza-like illness death for quite a while. And, but there's a really good chance that if you look at all those seasons, nothing has changed. We added this new really bad virulent H1N1 and the total number of deaths every flu season is still rocking about the same numbers. So it's really likely that we're going to have, you know, we kind of have this bad resurgence right now of influenza-like illness that's killing people. And, and I know there's a lot of differences. I'm not trying to say that this is the flu, but I'm just saying things that are killing people who are susceptible to dying from illness. And I know that it's hitting a younger population. I'm not trying to dismiss any of that. I'm just saying that the, it's really likely that after this surge, it's going to go back down. Our next flu season is going to be really mild because we exactly. killed off a bunch of people this summer that would have died next fall. Um, and, and that's, you know, that, and, and that's not dismissive. It's not saying that it's not sad that people are dying. Of course it's sad that people are dying, but let's put it in perspective and let's say if this is really just going to incorporate this whole, let's say lower respiratory illness that kills people every year, if this is just going to be a component of that and it does, there's not a huge Delta of the area under the curve, then let's move on, man. Like let's, let's, and not and not just flippantly, but let's be realistic about it and say, okay, we're going to have more deaths than we like, but we're going to drive our cars and we're going to drive the speed limit and we're going to wash our hands and we're going to not drink and drive and we're not going to cough and sneeze on people and we're going to 
whatever, wear our seat belts and, and social distance, and we can do everything at once and we can incorporate into this risk of life. And, and another thing that I, that I do quite a bit on my videos is I go through the total number of people who have died in the world since January 1, the total number of people who have died from influenza-like illness. And you still, if you look at everybody who's died from January 1 until today, there's a 99.2% chance that they've died of something other than, than COVID. So, you know, let's be, you know, let, let's just be realistic about it and accept the fact that stuff we don't want is going to happen no matter what we do. Uh, and we're going to do what we can, but we really don't know enough to really say this is absolutely what you should be doing. Right, right. And uh, yeah, let me just try and restate this for people so it's really clear. And so I'm sure that I understand it. And I thought this was such an interesting point. If you do think about it as a herd, and people may have heard, may, may have heard this term herd, right? right? When we're talking about herd immunity, or let's just talk about the herd in general, the H-E-R-D, you can right. imagine a herd of bison on the plains, right? And if a group of whatever, tigers, cyber, saber-tooth tigers, whatever predators used to take out bison or impala on the plains of Africa or water buffalo on the plains of Africa with lions. You can imagine that in that herd of water buffalo, there are some buffalo that are slower and weaker and are more susceptible to predation by predators within an ecosystem. Right. And, and usually so, that's usually that really young and the really old. The really young <laughs> and the really old. Right. And so in this case, this is such an interesting point that I've really not heard stated until I heard you talk about it, that if we look at overall deaths from influenza like illness or respiratory illness, what probably is happening is that we are seeing a decline in in flu cases right now because coronavirus is taking away that part of the herd that is most susceptible. And I suspect, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that if we looked at overall deaths from respiratory illness, once this is all over, we would see about the same number as previous years, but a larger proportion of that would be coronavirus, COVID-19, and a smaller proportion of that will be flu because coronavirus is now the predator on the plains of Africa hunting the water buffalo. There's still some water buffalo, and again, I'm not trying to be crass, I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'm just trying to make an analogy for myself right. and other people. There will always be people in any human population who are more susceptible to a respiratory virus. Right. And what this appears is that the people who are most susceptible to respiratory virus at this time in our human history are dying from COVID less than they are dying from the flu. And as you illustrate with that flu seasonality in the 2008, 2009, I believe, where we had the double peak of the flu, right. and the second peak was a lot of H1N1 of influenza, there was almost no flu season that year because many of the herd, many of the people who would have died, tragically, sadly, right, yes, were, were, were died from that second peak of the flu illness. And so this is an interesting point that... There's, being, there's so much talk right now, and I love what you're doing, and that's what I'm trying to do with these discussions I'm doing on the podcast is put all of this in perspective. A year from now, I think you and I hopefully will sit down for a Topo Chico in Austin and be able to look back at this and have perspective and, and have perspective. But so much of what we're doing now is real time, and I, I fear that many people are losing this perspective that, yes, coronavirus deaths are 
are significant. Yes, there are a lot of people dying. No, this is not the flu. But the question, the question which we are all asking, and we should be allowed to ask this question is, is this going to be essentially the same number of people who would have died from a flu-like illness, a respiratory illness, when it's all over and done with? And is it just that there's a new predator on the plains and the old, in this case, the old water buffalo are more susceptible, which can then segue into conversations about how we help those in our lives who are more susceptible become healthy. But does that make sense to you? Did I characterize that accurately? What do you think about that? Yeah, I've used a very similar metaphor, and I think you said it more eloquently than I do. But uh, it, I, I think that, I think that's a very reasonable way to look at it. And then I, I think if you 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 could play around with that metaphor and say, all right, well, this is um, yeah, this is this is a naive group of water buffalo that wandered into a region where the predators are a little more organized, or a little faster, and a little stronger, and maybe have a few more tricks that they aren't aware of. And so they're getting killed off more, right? They're, it's a, a little worse season for them. And of course, there's going to be the outlier, right? There's going to be a young, healthy, athletic uh, water buffalo that just gets in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's too many predators and it's going down, even though it could have been like the most resilient one in there. And, and so, yeah, that metaphor can be extrapolated into, yeah, like young, healthy people are getting uh, ill from this. Young, healthy people are getting uh, you know, young, young, healthy people are dying from this, but it's the exception. It's not the rule, right? The rule is that it's killing off, it's killing off the older and infirm people with comorbidities. People are already struggling with health issues who are more likely to succumb to any kind of illness. That's just the, that's just the truth of it. And over time, that herd will learn these new predators tricks. They'll figure out ways to defend against that. And not as many young, healthy, usually um, non-susceptible ones will be taken down. And, and even if the Delta, you know, the area under the curve, let's just talk about deaths and not inf- infections, but if, if the area under the curve, if, if the Delta, uh, I, I think a, our worst flu season is slightly less than 70,000. I want to say it's like 60 some odd thousand, 65,000 deaths in a single flu season. Well, if we end up with 60,000 this year, that's okay, it's a bad flu season. But even if we end up with 90,000, so 60,000 more, like 60,000 people totally die from COVID or completely die from COVID. To your point earlier, they might actually have influenza, right? They might have been hospitalized for influenza and have COVID, and it's going to be called a COVID death. And I'm not arguing whether that's the right or wrong thing to do. I'm just saying that's the reality of it right now. And so did we kill off... 30,000 extra people because of COVID. Well, let's just assume that we did. All right, that's a pretty big delta as far as like, all right, we went from 60,000 to 90,000. That's a 50% increase in death rate. But overall, total cause of death in America, that's not, that doesn't change. Like the death rate of the country does not statistically change from that. Again, not to be callous, but it's just part of reality. It just, it's just simply the way it is. And I think what will be so interesting will be to look at this with a broader lens in six months and look at the following flu season, look right. at the way coronavirus happens over the summer and next fall. And won't it be super interesting? And this would, this would prove the hypothesis. The hypothesis would be there will be less deaths in the summer and less deaths next fall if right. there are more deaths now. 
Right. And this is and, not to say, yeah, this is not to minimize the tragedy of the deaths now. This is to point out that as a human population, there will always be those who are more susceptible to these type of illnesses. And that number may not be increasing. It may just be accelerated by a few months or picked off by a better predator, quote unquote. Right. Right. And, and it's very reasonable to think if you look at historic precedents and we have pretty good flu data for quite a while. I mean, even this site, which is an all encompassing, it just has uh, all the way back down to 1997. Uh, I mean, it, it's a completely reasonable hypothesis to say based on historic precedents, we're going to have a really bad flu season right now. This coming fall is going quote, to be essentially quote, quote flu season. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, well, be more accurate. We'll say lower respiratory, lower, lower respiratory illness deaths, uh, right. or higher lower respiratory illness deaths right now that are going to kill people. This coming fall will be smaller than usual. And then, so that would be 2020, 21. And then 2021, 2022, what we would expect is for COVID to be within that normal curve. Mm-hmm. And making up a certain portion of that curve, and maybe a hundred percent of that curve is then COVID. That's possible. But if the area under the curve doesn't change, does it really matter which line is taking out the older buffalo? I mean, you're it, if if it's the same older buffalo that's getting taken out, it really at that point doesn't matter to the herd survival. It doesn't matter if it's the male line, the female line, the black line, the white line, or you know whatever. Right, right. So perhaps some of the more interesting data would be total trends for respiratory illness deaths, total, you know, and, and right. looking at those over time and saying this. And this is why it's such an interesting thing. And, it, you know, again, this is, this is like epidemiology. This is the kind of stuff that, that, that you know, I, I didn't even really think I liked. I find the numbers yeah. interesting now, but I just think it, it has so many implications. And we'll get to this at the end of the podcast you know, people have heard me on social media talking about this, like, what do we take away from all this, how to be more healthy, how to not be in that part of the herd that's most susceptible. I don't know if you've ever heard the joke, you know, like, if you go camping in the woods, you don't have to be faster than a bear, you just have to be faster than your buddy. Yeah, it's like, I mean, we we say that in the we say that in the SEAL teams about swimming, you just have to, you don't have to outswim the shark, you have to outswim your buddy. (laughs) Yeah. And, And I mean, it's, gosh, it sounds callous. And you know, you and I are laughing, but you know, in the midst of a crisis. But the the reason that that we're trying to share this information is to help people not be fearful. Right. Uh, fear doesn't get us anywhere, and hysteria gets us nowhere. And trying to constantly repurpose this data and think about this data from different ways really helps us get perspective, so that we can all move forward and understand this. And I think that you know the things I've seen in other countries corroborate this same idea. And and this can kind of segue into a discussion of herd immunity and the way that different countries are handling the virus. Right. Um, and, and with regard to social distancing and quarantine, I would love to get your thoughts on this. You hinted at it earlier, but my feeling is that we don't have any idea how effective social distancing and quote quarantine, which we're not really doing actually are until this whole thing is over and done with, because we don't know that they are saving lives. And to me, the greatest absurdity of this whole discussion is the White House conversations. And again, this is not to be political. Like, I'm just saying, like, are the discussions that said, 
The original estimates were 2 million people. Now it's 60,000 people. Look at how many people we saved with social distancing. I just, I I, I like lose it. When I hear that, I think you cannot say that. The the reason the model got adjusted is because the original model was very faulty. No one, in my opinion, and I, again, I'll let you weigh in on this in a second. In my opinion, no one person can claim in any iota of any lives saved by social distancing at this point, except right. for those lives that would have been lost by hospital, healthcare overwhelm in certain susceptible communities. But right. we can't say that social distancing has taken us from 2 million to 60,000 in any way, shape or form right now. That's probably no. just the model was wrong. What are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the way that model's done and all models, they, they, they make us, right, there has to be assumptions made on every, on every input to the model uh, you're, you're inputting into a formula and you're, and you're getting a result. For every input, there's an assumption made. We don't, we don't know the R-naught. We, like, we don't know the CFR. We don't know the effects. You know, the, we, we don't fully know the effects of um, like sunlight and warm weather and humidity. It's like we're, we're making some guesses based on what, like what research we've done specifically to this and what we've seen in the past with similar viruses and similar infections. Something people don't understand, uh, and I think it's because the media, uh, regardless of which side they're on, they're they're spinning this as like, um, yeah, th- this is a completely uh, completely novel, completely unexpected um, chain of events that we just there's there's either we should have been much more prepared for, or there's no way to prepare for. Either either argument is flawed. Um, it, the CDC, I mean, they publish guidelines every couple of years about what do you do during a pandemic. And they, and they very clearly, you can go to the CDC's website and you can look at pandemic preparedness, influenza, the, the most recent one I think was 2017 or maybe 2018. And they, and they stratify it. It's like, if you're in a category one, we're expecting fewer than 90,000 deaths. And so these are the recommendations, which are essentially nothing. Wash your hands. Um, if it's going to be, you know, a million to 1.5 million and it goes up in the category five, it's over 2 million deaths. And in category five, you're supposed to implement all of these uh, societal changes. And those things are exactly what we're doing. There's their isolation, their uh, social distancing is closing down schools and businesses and non-essential services. It's everybody washing their hands as people were, I don't think people wearing masks are in there even, but, um, and all of that is the best response we have. Those are NPIs, non-pharmacological interventions. These are the best responses, the best interventions we have when we don't truly have control. And we don't truly have control. And we never do. So for people to go too far fear-based, my argument for the fear-based is, look, we're already doing everything. We're doing everything we know to do. We are literally doing everything. And more importantly, as you alluded to, we don't have any idea how much it works. We don't have any idea. When the, when the, when the uh, estimate got downgraded to 240,000, that was with everything we're doing. That was, that was well after we had started doing every, like just two weeks after we had already shut down the world and it was still 240 and now it's down to 25% of that. So we don't know how much. If you look at Sweden, Sweden's done things completely differently than we do. We won't know for a year, year and a half. Look at their data. Look at our data. <clears throat> we don't know for sure that it's making any difference. We have states that are having really bad outbreaks 
that were some of the first to lock down. We have states that are having almost no lockdown, and they were the last ones to implement anything. And so we, the, the truth is we don't know. And so we, what, 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 you're, what you're talking about, sort of the, the assumption that people are making when they're having any of these arguments is that you can, attri- you can ascribe causality to any of this data. Absolutely, you cannot. And we know this from all medical research. Causality is damn near impossible to show. Jumping off of a, you know, the Empire State Building, all right, causality. We can say 100% of the time you're going to die and that's going to be the cause is the impact to the ground. But apart from that, man, we cannot say causality. And so when people, you know, out in public are, you know, getting so angry with each other, that, you know, they're calling the police and they're, you know, they're just completely incensed and enraged that this person is killing people. You know, that's, that's the shouting down. That's the political part that's super unhelpful right now. And this has been, this has been done in a lot of things, right? So like, uh, if you think of Kevin Hart, brilliant comedian, great guy gets the opportunity of a lifetime and, and doesn't get to do it because he wrote a culturally insensitive joke 10 years ago. You know, that, that's kind of a new phenomenon. And that's kind of the same mentality that I'm seeing around this a lot. It's like, oh, you want people to die if you want to restart the economy. You want people to die if you aren't wearing a mask when you go running. Like, wait a second. If you can prove to me that if I go run around my block without a mask, I'm going to kill one person, I won't do it. Guarantee I won't do it. There's no way in hell you can prove that to me. <laughs> I guarantee you can't prove that to me. So, uh, you know, without causality, all we're, all we're talking about is associations, which goes to something I was talking about earlier. There's associations between drinking alcohol and having fatty liver disease. There's associations to eating a poor diet and being obese. I mean, it would be really easy if we could say 100% of people who eat this way are lean, healthy, whatever. That would be great. That doesn't exist. It's not causal. Everything is multifactorial. Everything is super complex. And to try to say that there's a really simplistic answer to a really complex problem is ridiculous. And, and we're engaging in politics when we do that. The truth is nobody knows. And the best medical evidence out there right now is just not very good. There's just not that much to hang our hat on. So it makes sense to keep trying new things because, like I said, there's a cost to everything. Are we slowing down deaths? Maybe. Let's dip our toe into the deep end a little bit, though, and see if we can not collapse the economy and still not increase deaths. You know, let's let's see if we can isolate the elderly and infirm, and and go back to work and not you know and restart the economy and have more resources to support those people and help them out. You know, if they do get ill, because the economy is going, because there's money and because there's healthcare workers. I mean, we're we're laying off healthcare workers all over the country right now because there's no business because COVID-19 is the only acceptable reason to see a healthcare provider right now. Yeah. It's a little bit of a strange, it's a strange, strange time. And we didn't even really get into the economic discussions, but I think that no one listening to this is, is a stranger to the fact that this shutdown has had massive economic implications and, and, and that you can make a very reasonable argument right now, as, as can many other people, that the economic implications, the economic fallout of this may be worse than the virus itself in terms of lives lost and suffering. 
And there's one of the things that's been stressful for me or just saddening is there's a lot of tribalism around this. Yeah. And I wonder how much this is Russian bots and things like that, making us all more tribal and causing us to become separated groups of humans that all hate each other. But there's a lot of Corona shaming happening right now. And as you said, I've experienced this myself. If you suggest that the status quo might not be the right answer, people inevitably will respond to me on Twitter. This is irresponsible. You're a physician. This is irresponsible. You want people to die. And I just think that's, that's just, it's either a Russian bot or it's someone that doesn't understand the fact that I'm just trying to ask questions and help us all move the conversation forward because no one wants people to die. (laughs) You know, no one wants people to die right now. Um, there, maybe there are people that want people to die. I mean, I, I've, I've been through the exact same thing. I mean, I, I, to be, to be quite honest, I don't really use, I, I don't really do my own social media for the most part. My team's doing it, but I, I you know, I saw a couple of, a uh, couple of guys discussing something on Twitter and it seems to be a, a reasonable, rational conversation. Um, and there were people obviously that I follow or I follow me. I don't know exactly how that feed gets done, but I, I thought I was kind of in concurrence with him. I was going, oh, yeah, you know, I, I, you know that it's really interesting that this and that's happened, but it really makes it slippery to understand, like, how we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and that's, that's really the consideration right now. And I wasn't even taking a stance on what we should be doing or shouldn't be doing, and I just started getting ripped up one side and down the other. Uh, you know, people attacking my bona fides is to be, even to have an intelligent uh, dis, uh, opinion about this because, um, you know, I don't know, because I sent an, an email that they didn't like once or something. Like, I, don't, I don't know. Like it, it went from a, you know, it, it, it went from attacking my bona fides, attacking me as a human being. And like, and like you're saying, like uh, uh, being too stupid to interpret the data and not having it. And I'm like, oh, well, I think we've, we've really lost uh, any rational conversation at this point. I was like, like, yeah, you, you guys go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry that I got in the middle of your conversation here. I'll, I'll stay away from it from now on. You guys, you guys doomsday this all you want to, you know, I got, I got reported to the medical board of California Wow! by a vegan physician on Twitter for suggesting that we might consider a strategy to protect the old by allowing the young and the healthy to get exposed to the virus. Like well, in my experience, strategy. in my experience, vegans are not the most tolerant of other people's ideas. Uh, and, and that's, that's a, that's a blanket statement. I'm sure there are yeah. like great, moral human beings who are vegans, but there's a, there's a, you know, there's a very high degree of passionate bias, uh, with any ism, any kind of ism, veganism or any other kind of ism. So and to be fair, I, perhaps it's not good of me to characterize that physician is a vegan physician, but perhaps I am being more tribal than I should be by characterizing him as a physician. I should just say that uh, as a vegan physician, I should just say that I got reported to the medical board by another physician who was on Twitter encouraging his followers to also report me to the medical board yeah. for suggesting that we might pursue a strategy based on herd immunity at this point in the curve. And and I thought that was just, that's a little too far, you guys. Like, we need to be able to talk yeah. about the status quo. And well, if, if, you can't, if you can't have a discussion, then, exactly. then, what, are we, then what are we doing? Like, where, where's the possible exit from any of this? Um, you know, another thing that, that drives me crazy about all this is that the people who are having that, the people who are shouting down so vehemently that uh, anything other than the status quo or even stricter than the status quo is irresponsible and going to cost lives. 
what's their exit strategy? Like, I don't, what, what, how long do we do this until we all die from starvation? I mean, if you want to be absolute about this, the only way to do this absolutely would be to put every single person in the world in their own container. And then of course we would all die immediately because none of us would be able to get food or you know anything like that. So, okay, we're going to let some people out to, for food services. All right, well, we need electricity. We're going to let some people out. For, so there's no absolute way to do this. I think what we're doing right now is much, much more severe than anything that's sustainable. And I, 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 and I think it's foolhardy to suggest anything else. I know there are economic experts who are predicting the economic impact through this. And the social economic, the social scientists are talking about this. And even the epidemiologists are talking about how this is going to change how people think about healthcare and what they're going to seek care for. And there's, there, there are a lot of changes going on with all this. And there are things to consider right now. But you know, the, if, you look at, if you look at the experts, and as we said earlier, you hire an expert to mitigate risk. That's why you have a tax attorney. That's why you have any kind of attorney. <laughs> That's why you bring in any kind of productivity expert. Like anybody you bring in who's an expert, they're mitigating risk. And so the economic experts are the same. And so we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be looking at this with the certainty that this virus is going to wipe out humanity. Uh, everybody's going to die from it or every elderly person is going to die from it. It's not true. Uh, we shouldn't be looking at it as this is complete economic collapse and we're all going to be third world six months from now. That's not true either. Like, uh, or everyone's going to commit suicide or become homeless or become a drug addict. Not true either. Like, there, there are risks, but the way our brains are wired, if you look at evolution, if you look at how we protect ourselves, I always tell people that um, you know, the HPTA axis, that protects us from the outside world, right? The cortical stress response, uh, the fight or flight is protecting us from what's outside of our skin. Our immune system protects us from what's inside of our skin, right? Like once it gets into our body, that's our immune system. Outside, our outside immunity is... The, is the sympathetic fight or flight and HPTA axis that it drives all of that uh, behavior. Well, that, that system is designed to look at threat, right? That's what the amygdala does. It notifies the brain of a threat. And when you're, if you think about fight or flight, like a, a fist fight or a near car crash, or if you've ever been in a gunfight or like things that are really maximal stress response, they cause you to focus on one thing. And that one thing and only one thing is in your, like, that's all you're worried about because that is the threat that's going to kill you or seriously harm you. And so you have to get away from that threat. Well, if everybody is thinking about coronavirus as the one thing, your prefrontal <clears throat> cortex, your brain is not functioning when you're in fight or flight. It's not functioning. Everything is driven to be impulsive because if you think about something, you're going to get taken down, right? You, and that's why training is so you know important with you know, gunfights and fighting. It's like everything has to be reflexive and reactionary because your brain quits working. If you ask somebody in a gunfight what their phone number is, they don't know. I guarantee it. They don't know how to, they don't know what six plus seven is either. Their brains aren't working. So the more we stress out about this, the more we allow ourselves to say coronavirus is it. That's the only thing to worry about. Well, first of all, we can't control this virus. There's nothing we can do to control this virus. Like this virus is infinitesimally small. It is floating all over the world. There's nothing we can do about that. Here's what we can do. Okay, let's do that. And let's see how we can do other things to prevent ourselves from dying or being harmed by other threats, which means that we have to quit hyper-focusing on this one thing.
I love it. And I want to get in, let, let's get into what we can do in one moment. I just want to piggyback on that point and reemphasize something that I've been talking about a lot recently and you have as well. I love what you said there. We cannot control this virus. Right. And, you know, I just think, let's just review flattening of the curve, okay? <laughs> this is what happens with no measures. This is the predicted model of what happens with measures. And the reason that we do social distancing is to prevent healthcare system overwhelm right here. That, most people would agree, that is the only reason that social distancing is helpful because as you say, and as I've said, we cannot control this virus. Both of these models, both of these curves have the same area under the curve, meaning that the number of sick people who will get the virus is the same. In this curve, which is flat, the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. In this curve, there's a concern that it will get overwhelmed. I think there's no, uh, there's no situation in which it would have gotten overwhelmed to this extent. But, and as I've stated, healthcare systems are heterogeneous. There are some healthcare systems in the United States. Hey, that but before, before you flip yeah. off that, can I make a comment about that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so the, the other thing that's important to realize is what, what we're talking about um, is you know, how, how what we're doing is affecting uh, the height of that as well, right? So if you look at the way that's designed, that dashed line going horizontal from, from the y-axis over, right? That's, that dashed line, that's the calculated maximal risk, right? That's where we're thinking we want to let this get as close to that as possible without going past that because we want to shorten the amount of time that that curve is going on on the x-axis, right? If we if we were only 10% up the y-axis, which we could make the argument that we are, and we stay there, how far down the x-axis are we going to go to keep that same area under the curve? Really far. Right? So, I mean, that's that's the other thing to consider. Like, the, the information is in that graph to also say, you know, just like we allow the speed limit to be 70 miles an hour in certain areas where we feel like the risk is super low of getting in a car crash relative to school zones where we go 25 miles an hour, we could make that 25 miles an hour and say, all right, no, like we're going to have so few deaths. It's ridiculous. You know, but we don't take that much action because, because what we're trying to avoid is that, is that dashed line, right? That's that dotted line. We're trying not to go past that. So our goal shouldn't be to be nowhere near that. Our goal should be let's get as close to the acceptable risk as possible and keep this short and keep the rest of society going so that, you know, this curve to the left doesn't happen from something completely unrelated to healthcare or to COVID. You know, this could be economic, you know, this could be economic destruction could be that curve, you know, the blue curve. So let's, yeah. 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 We could draw a third curve here. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. We could draw a third curve here, which, as you're saying, is way down here. But to get the same area under the curve, it would be off this page, right? right. And right. this is how long the virus has been spreading on the x-axis. So, right. But what's important to emphasize here, what you and I are both saying, is that the area under the curve is the same. If the same number of people get exposed to the virus eventually, and the same number of people, the same number of people will die from the virus. Right. That. Social distancing. It doesn't change the susceptibility. It doesn't change the susceptibility. It doesn't change the number of people that get, ex- get exposed long-term. And it doesn't change the number of people who die. What right. changes the number of people who die is we don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system. Fine. I get it. 
right. that's very heterogeneous. And so this curve might look differently in different parts of the country. In San right. Diego, there's no one in the hospitals generally. Right. And, you know, there's plenty of ability for hospitals to carry more people, which is great. We didn't overshoot the curve. But now that we didn't overshoot the curve, isn't it time to start thinking about opening things back up? Because so much of the groupthink on Instagram and these other social media platforms seems to be that people believe somehow that by social distancing, we are, we are slowing the spread infinitesimally or we are right. slowing the spread infinitely. We are, we are decreasing the absolute number of people who will be exposed to the virus, which I, I've not seen any data to suggest that that's the case. That right. Social distancing doesn't prevent people from getting exposed. It just lengthens the curve. It stretches it out. This yeah, is a virus. We're not complete, in control of it. Yeah, it's completely realistic to expect that the entire world is going to be exposed to this virus. Um, I mean, you, I mean, I, I heard an epidemiologist saying the other day, or I'm sorry, the virologist I heard on a podcast saying that we have like 265 trillion viruses in our body at all times. Like, it, you know, we're, we're always being exposed to viruses. So, you know, the other part of, of you know, kind of lengthening that, uh, you know, lowering that curve and lengthening it, lengthening it to the right on, on the x-axis, making it, uh, increasing that duration is in the event that we do get a vaccine that can seriously protect us from this. So we want to give ourselves time for that. Well, like I said, we, one thing, we don't know that we'll ever get a vaccine. We don't have a vaccine to any other coronavirus. Uh, two, there's a lot of people who won't even be willing to take the vaccine. Uh, three, you know, if we're, if we're only, uh, you know, let's say we could get a vaccine in the next year. All right, let's just acquiesce to that and say, you know, starting in December when people start dying in China, uh, it's going to be till next December that we have that. And so we want to keep this curve super, we want to keep it underneath that dashed line until next December. Well, if we're only going up 10% of that uh, y-axis, then what we're really doing is, is we're pushing it out like 10 years. Well, we don't need 10 years, right? If, we're, if we don't have a vaccine in a year, we're not going to have a vaccine in 10 years either. So like, let's give ourselves some reasonable time to make a change. Uh, you know, and, and again, not overwhelm the healthcare system and you know, try, to, try to lengthen that, keep that curve low and long. But we can't, we can't keep it so low that we're, you know, again, we're driving 10 miles an hour uh, on the freeways. Like it's, 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 not, it's an unnecessary... It's an extreme, it's an extreme uh, intervention. Do you want to talk a little bit about the FAR, the FAR modeling that we talked about? Um, I'd like to share some of that information. Um, I can show the stuff I've got up, um, yeah. FAR's principle. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I thought that was so interesting. I, I don't remember the conversation we were having about that before. Okay, I'll share the screen. And then yeah, 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 if you yeah. start it off, I'll... Okay, yeah. So... Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is a modeling of uh, coronavirus daily new cases. Um, basically, um, this was sent to me by a friend, so I did not do this, but uh, it's quite interesting. You can look at the um, daily new coronavirus or COVID-19 cases by country from our world and data. This yeah. goes up to April the 14th or something, I believe. So it's a little bit uh, not totally up to date, but it's pretty close. Six European right. countries. You can plot the data from February 15th going forward, and you can see France, Spain, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, and Norway. The dates are on the x-axis. The number of, again, this is the newly the new cases um, by country in these, in these locales. And so you can 
apply a three-day moving average and normalize each peak uh, by the cases of uh, new number of cases diagnosed by country. You get a graph that looks like this. So the first thing you notice is that across all of the countries, the curves start to look pretty similar up, down, right? Yeah. We, we were and, talking about and, this and the important part of that is like we don't know where the interventions were made, but they aren't the interventions weren't made simultaneously. Exactly. Right? So it it really appears, and we saw this first in China. To whatever degree their their data is useful, and I I think you either have to just make the uh, you just have to kind of make the rule that you're going to accept all the data or none of the data. So right now, working with the data we have, it looks like everybody kind of has this peak, uh, and then it starts coming back down. Like I know, um, you know, there there was a really strong argument that I read about when China actually started going into isolation and when their peak started decreasing. That there was no way that you know. It, there's no way that isolating everybody was what led to their decrease in peak. Exactly. And I think that we've seen the same thing in Italy. Like, you know, Italy was so bad so quickly. Uh, and there's lots of, you know, there's lots of rationale as to why that, that could be. Um, but you know, they, you know, without making any changes, they started seeing this big decrease. And, and some people say, well, it's the lag, you know, it's the, and maybe that's true. Maybe it's not, but it, as we were talking about before this, this seems to be true with every virus, right? It seems to be true with every respiratory illness is that there's a peak and then it drops back off. And the seasonality does not necessarily have anything to do with the seasons. It could be some sort of cycle about the virus that we don't understand yet. But as we were saying before the call, you know, if a, if a virus was so virulent that it killed 80% of its infected host, then the virus wouldn't last very long at all. It would, it would it'd be a couple of weeks and everything would be dead. Um, or, it, you know, if a virus spread so quickly that it killed all the susceptible, well, then the deaths would go away almost immediately, right? Uh, because everybody would, would be exposed to it. Um, and so what we see with this recurrent every year, obviously, if, as long as we keep having flus, as long as people die from the flu season, there are people that are susceptible to dying from the flu by definition, and they may or may not have been exposed to the flu at some point in their life, right? So if, if, I, get, if, I, if I had the flu 10 years ago, uh, and the, the common influenza B, uh, a common B strand, if I had the flu and, then, and I didn't really get sick from it, and I get exposed to the same virus 10 years later, I might get really sick from it. And it, the same thing could be true for COVID, right? You, you could be exposed to COVID and get a dry cough that lasts a couple of days and be, ah, fine. And if this virus sticks around 10 years from now, that same exposure might put you in the hospital because the susceptibility isn't static. It's not like there's a finite number of people that are susceptible. And once all those people are done, we're done. Like, no, everybody's aging. Everybody's getting comorbidities. Everybody's having fluctuations in their immunity, right? Like I feel like I have a pretty healthy immune system. That doesn't mean I have a healthy immune system every single day. Right. I mean, I could get, it could be run down one day. Like Based I could, on your sleep, <laughs> right. I could not get enough sleep. I could, I could decide to eat, you know, freaking pizza and drink beer and stay up late and get poor sleep and not, you know, not exercise the next day and stay in my house all day and have a negative mood about something. And like my immune system's not nearly as good as if I ate well and exercised and slept well and had an upbeat mood and got outside and got some sunlight. Like all, all of these things matter. So nothing is static. And all we can do right now is like what we're currently doing mitigation, the NPIs, the non-pharmacological interventions, we're doing everything that the CDC would ever recommend doing. 
we're doing it to a higher degree than it's in any pandemic plan that's exist in existence. Nothing. There's not a single pandemic plan that I've read for influenza that's anywhere close to as severe as what we're doing right now. So we're doing everything that, that the experts, the risk averse experts are saying we could do. The only other thing to do right now is to optimize our, ourselves, right? Everybody. And the good news is like, like for you and I's, this is the same thing I tell people 365 days a year. Like this is exactly the same thing. Like it, coronavirus hasn't changed a single recommendation. I still recommend the same nutrition. I still recommend the same activities. I still recommend the same stress mitigation and I still recommend the same amount of sleep. I love it. These are the things that are going to protect you. And I want to hear about how you eat in one sec. I'll just, I'll just finish sharing this thing about the models um, because this is the point that I think we have to make in this podcast. We, we, the social distancing measures are probably not what causes these curves to have this shape, this shape, because all of these countries did it differently. All of these countries did it at different times. Yeah. And, and this is the curve that we see for every virus. This is the same pattern that those influenza cases had that you showed earlier. Right. And, you know, basically what you come to is that you can create a model. Um, you can create a model of coronavirus based on all the new, all that data. And then you can test the model against what we're seeing in the U.S. So here's the model using real world average curve for the downslope model in the US. And you can see that here's the model they predict in the blue, here's the model in the actuals in the orange. Looks pretty darn similar to me. And then you can compare the model, which is really cool. You can test the model in, this is the UK, you can test the model in Iran, and you can yep. test the model in Sweden. All of these countries did different things. Sweden actually didn't do a whole lot of yep. social distancing, though they did, they did do some, but nothing nearly like what we did. And they did not shut down the economy a lot of these things start to follow the exact same curve. Yeah. Um, and this is what Farr's principle, William Farr made the observation that epidemic events rise and fall in a roughly symmetrical pattern that can be approximated by a bell-shaped curve. You know, you set the exponential downswing, the same as the upswing centered at day 32. And this is how all of these curves kind of sit over this Farr's model. And I right. think this is what we will see. This is how, um, this is how, uh, this is how models work with viruses. And I want to show a few and, of and, the... And something I'd like to point out too yeah. is that uh, the models are descriptive, right? Most of medical science is descriptive. We look at things and we go, hey, this always seems to be doing that. And that always seems to be doing this. And now we describe that. And, and that's our knowledge base about it. And so, you know, to, to this point, like we know that this happens but we don't know why, right? So we're just describing that this is what it usually looks like and we can't say exactly why, but if you're going to hang your hat on something, probably makes sense to go with the phenomenon, a well-known phenomenon that's recurrent every year. In many different viruses. In many different, uh, you know, it, it probably applies to even things that aren't viruses, right? Like, it yeah. Probably, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So here's Germany, daily new cases up, down. Yep. It looks a lot like this, right? Yep. This yep. blue line looks a lot like this, you know, yep. essentially. Let's look at Sweden. Yep. You know, Sweden, they're probably still on the upswing or like here's the top of the bell curve and it's going down over here Yep. because Sweden was a little bit behind. Let's look at the U.S. And this is the behavior of viruses in the pattern. Like you just don't see this in other ways. Here's the U.S. Daily new yep. cases up and it looks like we're on the downslope right here, yep. you know, and, 
And what we would like to do then is come back in, and this is on Worldometer. You guys can look at this any day. You know, look at this in a week. It'll probably be out here. So you could predict that if we center, you know, day 32 in the U.S. or we say the top of the bell curve in the U.S. is somewhere around here. Yeah. And you can say, all right, you go back. That's that's April the 10th. You go back here until March the 29th, so approximately 12 days. And, you know, it's gone down significantly. You know, the daily cases was 20,000. We can go forward from April the 10th to, you know, maybe April the, um, you know, April the 21st or 22nd. And we would think, well, are we going to see a cases around 24,000? We probably will yep. predict this. And then, you know, you can go out, oh, we have to go to get down to 5,000 cases a day. We have to go out, um, you know, back to March 19th. And, you can see the pattern is pretty similar. Across. Yeah, and I, I think I think the most important part is that the death the death rate curve is following that, and the cases the cases can be altered a lot by how how many case like how much you're testing, right? Right. If we tested, like if we tested, if we could somehow test everyone in America tomorrow, then it would huge be a huge, it'd be a huge peak, and yeah. then it'd go down to zero, right? Because there'd be no reason to test anybody the next day. Um, so that can be manipulated by how many by how many tests you're doing, uh, and of course the accuracy of the test matters as well. But uh, you know the, the death rates follow those exact you know the death tolls follow that exact same pattern, and um, you know it just it just makes sense that um, you know if you look at Italy when kind of when this thing was first kicking off in America, once we started getting into the triple digits on deaths, Italy was having about a thousand deaths a day. Uh, and they weren't really breaking a thousand. They were hanging around 900 and some change every single day. And then they got a little bit over a thousand and then they started coming back down and now they're at like 500. And to your point, it's like they were doing everything then, you know, they were doing everything weeks before their peak that they're currently doing. Um, so you can make the argument that it's, that it's mattering at almost impossible to make the argument that it's causal. Um, but the other thing to consider is that America is not a homogenous population, right? New York City is unquestionably going to be our worst city. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine any set of circumstances where we're going to have anything like that because of the population density and because, you know, the vast majority, I, I think I read that uh, 80% of the, of the PCRs were showing that this was uh, that that this actually came from Europe and not from China. The, oh, yeah. the New York, the New York, the New York cases came from Europe and yeah. the West Coast ch- cases came from China. Um, and so, you know, it's a super, I mean, it, one, it's a, it's an international travel hub. The population density is enormous. It's way higher than anywhere else. Right. Um, and they were a little late to the game. If there's social distancing was the issue they're they're later to the game than a lot of other places, um, so I I mean I I think it's uh, it, I think the most important thing is to just keep reiterating that we don't know, but historical precedents should be calming. It should be re, it should be settling to you to say we've seen viruses we've seen novel viruses appear before. They tend to do this the overall death rate in the entire world and the entire country doesn't seem to change significantly. In fact, if you look at worldwide death rates, it's just like America's it's lower. Like we're actually lower right now because things are settling down and you aren't having automobile accidents. You don't have occupational accidents. Like you aren't having as much violent crime. 
you aren't having as much drug overdose because I guess people can't get drugs or I don't know exactly the cause of all of it. But all cause mortality is actually lower right now uh, for this year worldwide and in America. I think the month of March in America was 20% lower than any March for the five years before. So the all cause mortality, you know, maybe we're killing, like I said, maybe we're killing the same people and they're just preferentially dying from this virus because it's faster or because we're more concerned about it. There's observational bias to that, right? It's, it's conceivable that 50% of all uh, of everyone who's died from this also had influenza. They could have had H1N1 also, right? We don't know. Um, but it's, it's conceivable. And so the, I, I think in order to sustain this in our minds as a pandemic that, that requires the same type of actions right now, we have to believe that this is leading to more morbidity and mortality than anything else in, in our concern. And that's just not true. It doesn't look like that. Will you show the, the curves for influenza again, just to show people for <laughs> yeah. the time that that yep. um, that sort of bell-shaped curve for the other virus. Yep. Yep. So if see, we right, yeah, you if see we, that bell-shaped curve here. For those who are not watching, this will all be on YouTube and Instagram. But can spread that out, make it look a little better. Maybe uh, get rid of that. Yeah. So I mean, th this is you know, as you're talking about FARS model, like this, this is the standard curve. If you go back to any year, so this is this current flu season. Which uh, pay attention to the x-axis here. Uh, you know, we're only at week 15 and we essentially have a non-existent curve, right? Um, if we go back- That curve weeks, looks a little different because we're in this year with coronavirus and these right. are the other years, they look different. Right. And so if we go out here, 10, 11, or 12, 13, 14, 15, it's usually low. Um, yeah, that was a particularly bad flu season. This was a bad influenza. This was a bad H1N1. Again, weeks, uh, you know, see, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. This is where we're at right now, right? We have, z we have essentially zero right now. So uh, this curve, although the shape of the curve looks really similar, um, right, every single year and somewhere around week 15 is going away. And again, we go back to the H1N1 big craze. We actually had a really mild flu season. If you look at the number of cases, and we had this big spike of this novel virus, we went into the next year. And again, if you know, the curve is usually in weeks 40 ish to weeks 15 ish, it kind of goes in and out. And then if we go to 2009, 2010, we continue this H1N1. And then instead of starting a peak here that, or you're starting a flu season here that peaks somewhere out here and comes exactly. back down over here. We just essentially didn't have a flu season. Yeah. And then the next year we went to this, which H1N1 didn't even make up a huge portion. Uh, you know, it made up a significant portion, but it wasn't, it wasn't predominantly H1N1 and we just went to a normal flu season curve. And every year that you go up, you know, H1N1 is still in there. We're, peaking, you know, this one peaked a little later in the year. Uh, but I mean, it, it's very realistic to say this area under this curve, and this is of course cases, this isn't necessarily deaths, but with a, with a CFR held constant, which is basically the case, um, you know, the, this, you know, this, the death toll would look uh, just like this is the y-axis would be different. Um, and then if the other thing important to point out is 
you know, the a, the H1N1, right? It, this is the orange. Um, so it wasn't, all of a sudden, it wasn't a really important factor, but it didn't change the area under the curve. This year, it was a huge factor, right? That was a big one. That was 2013-14. Look at all that H1N1. Do you, do you think, and this is just something I'm thinking about if we go back to our comparison to water buffalo on the plains, and we're looking at, at least in terms of flu, we have different predators, right? Different strains yep. of the flu. And when we're saying flu A and flu B, these are different types of the influenza virus. The H refers to hemagglutinin and the N refers to neuraminidase. These are just markers. But every year, it's like a new flu strain comes up. And I guess it, you can decide what the main predator is on the, on the savanna. Right. And, and look at this. Look at 1617. The predator was H3. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it is interesting. And then, and then 1718, this was this is the year I think we had 60,000 deaths. Um, interesting that you know the total cases weren't weren't a lot higher, just a lot more people died, and it was a lot of H3. Mm-hmm. And it's it's yeah, it's so interesting to compare this to previous flu seasons. And like you said, it's it's perhaps a little bit better predator, not orders of magnitude better, but it certainly looks differently than flu. And I think that's been a lot of the confusion online is when I say things online, people say, go to an ICU in New York and tell me this is the flu. And I say, I'm not saying this is the flu. This is right. a different respiratory virus than the flu. But when we I, look I, at the numbers. But it is fair to say it's a respiratory virus that seems to be holding true to the curves of most other respiratory viruses. viruses. That's a reasonable statement. I think so too. And I don't, I mean, I, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I will accept, you know, like you said, we, you and I both reserve the right to be completely wrong about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just Fortunately, I'm not an epidemiologist and I'm not a virologist. So if I'm totally wrong about this, it doesn't discredit me too much as a expert on sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and I am not an epidemiologist or a virologist either. Have you seen this website, nextstrain.org? No, I'm not. This is incredible. So it shows you all of the phylogeny of coronavirus. You can see there are over 3,000 mutants right now where they've all come from. And you can do this, which is really cool uh, for people who are watching. Uh, for people who are not watching this, you may want to watch this on YouTube. Um, you can see this is actually going pretty slow, but you'll see this is how they're tracking the virus starting in China moving to France, and they're doing this by genetic sequencing. You can see the purple here is the Chinese sort of phylogeny of the virus. There's some Chinese virus now coming from to the West Coast, to the center part of the U.S., to Canada. And here's the European thing that you were talking about, the green ending up over there as well. And like you're saying, from the sequencing that we've done, it does appear that a lot of what came to New York was from Europe. Right. Right. And and what may have come to the west coast of California was from China. Again, just different strains of the virus, different mutants of the virus. But it, you can sort of track it all over the world. Gets to be a little complex at this stage when it's basically going everywhere. Where right. You can look, and it shows you. You know, you can see as it's going through this, it's showing you the time frame. I mean, right now, uh, it's only in mid March here. This is what it looks like in mid March. And then it goes through the whole sequence, and you can see all these different strains. By the, by the time we're in mid-March, there's strains everywhere and, and where they've come from. So I thought the next right. strain thing is pretty interesting in terms of thinking about that stuff. So yeah. as we wrap up here, we can just talk forever, my man. Um, let's just – I'm curious how you eat, and, and let's just really kind of lead let's, – let's end the podcast on a positive note, um, what we can do to move forward or what we can do to – how we can prepare for this, how we can be 
the fittest member of the herd that we can possibly be. You've already said it, sleep, exercise, diet, but let's just kind of, I think that's the part of the conversation that I think is the most useful for us moving forward for most people is to realize, as I've talked about on previous podcasts, that so many of the people that are suffering tragically with coronavirus are elderly, which I think equates to poor nutritional status, obese, insulin resistant, and comorbidities. So that's the conversation that I hope comes out of this. Like, let's be a healthier herd overall. Um, Tell me what you think about that. Yeah. So, I mean, what I've been harping on this, and and actually, um, the interesting thing is this led into a skill set that I already had because, um, you know, what, what I've... What have I? What I've experienced in trying to uh, change people's behaviors, um, and changing people's behaviors with the intent of optimizing their health, right? And so the, these are using their goals uh, as their goals is the carrot, um, you know, and the behaviors is, the behaviors is, uh, being stick. Um, so how like how do you uh, how do you how do you alter behavior when when there's not great objectivity to the success. And what I mean by that is if I say I want to get in some sort of physical shape, right? Like I want to be faster or stronger or more muscular or leaner or something like that. Well, I can measure that. It's really easy for me to measure that, right? Like I can say, well, if I want to be stronger, I can measure how much I'm lifting, right? And I can, I can track it and say, am I getting stronger? If I want to be leaner, you know, I can, I can do body composition. I can weigh myself. I can look in the mirror. Like I can actually figure out if what I'm doing is working. When I counsel people and when I consult with people on sleep, there's not a great objective measure of sleep, right? Like the whole definition of sleep means that you aren't aware of your environment. So you're going into a period of time where you're no longer aware. So if you sleep really well, that means you fell into awareness, you fell out of awareness really quickly, and then you came back into awareness very suddenly. So by definition, you're not aware of anything in between there. And we're kind of in the same boat right now for advising people on how to improve their immunity. Um, or, but the, again, the good news is that we know what we know, what, even though I can't, I can't necessarily convince you that if I wrote something really prescriptive for you and you did it to the letter for the next month and you didn't get coronavirus or you got coronavirus and it hardly had any symptoms or maybe had no symptoms, it's really hard for me to say that, well, that's because you followed what I said to do, right? That the subjective experience is, is not, it's not that concrete. But what we do know is that things like, you know, eating highly antigenic food, that's taking some of your immune system. Like that, it, by definition, you're using part of your resources that you could use to fight this virus. You're using that to affect your gut, to affect whatever antigenic response you're getting in your gut. If you don't sleep well, if you short short yourself two hours of sleep, we know, like we can measure the metrics of your immune system the next day. We can measure things as simple as natural killer cells go down by 30% by shorting sleep two hours in a single night. So we know, we know that these behaviors lead to optimal health. So in a sense, it doesn't really change what I'm doing because I'm, I'm still trying to you know, convince people that they're, even though there's going to be a neb, there's going to be a nebulous sort of soft, uh, subjective experience to what, what I'm recommending over the course of the long term, uh, we know that lowering your stress 
will improve your immune system. Like we, I was talking a little bit earlier about the fight or flight. Well, at fight or flight, not only does your brain not really work during fight or flight, your body's superhuman, right? You're faster, stronger, more agile. Your reflexes are faster. Your pain thresholds up. Your pupils are dilated. You're taking in a broader view. You're hyper-focused on one thing. Your pulmonary trees have, uh, have expanded. You're taking in more oxygen. Your cardiovascular system's pumping faster. You're mobilizing glycogen like you're superhuman but your brain's not working because your brain shouldn't work in fight or flight and your immune system isn't working the opposite the opposite of fight or flight is deep sleep slow wave sleep you have a maximum immune system almost a useless body so uh, if your uh, fighter you know, if your um, HPTA axis is keeping you alert in proportion to your environment and so that's to say simply cortisol is keeping you alert and perform it in proportion to your environment the closer you are to fight or flight, the more your physiology is behaving like fight or flight. So if you're stressed all day, every day about coronavirus, you're moving towards fight or flight. Even if maybe you're only going 10% closer or 20% closer, you're still impairing your immune system by 10 to 20%. You're impairing your cognitive functioning 10 to 20%. And then the other, sim the other, the other similarity to this is the number one reason that people have insomnia is what we call psychophysiologic insomnia, which means you can't sleep because you're worried about not sleeping. <laughs> well, we're running into the same thing. People are stressed right now because they're stressed, right? Like, I don't want to be stressed right now, but this damn coronavirus has me all stressed out. And I know that that stress is lowering my immunity and it's lowering my joy and it's lowering my cognitive functioning and it's lowering all quality of life. But I'm, but I'm really stressed out about it, and that's making me more stressed. So, uh, you know, I, I talk in general terms right now. It's like it's super easy. Like eat single-ingredient foods. Like, you know, eat food that your grandparents would call food. Like that's, that's a starting spot. Like if, you, if you're more fine-tuned than that, great. Like if you know actually what – like if you actually know what, what uh, is antigenic to you and what causes in, inflammatory reactions in you – you can fine tune that even more. But if you're somebody who's been living off of Arby's and, you know, uh, chilies and uh, fast food and stuff like that, then uh, get to a whole food diet right now. Like that's a, that's a simple fix right there. Um, and then, you know, activities are the same ways. Like if you are, if you are somebody who uh, already exercises, my recommendation to you right now, if you're, if your big concern is making sure you're as immuno, you're immunocompetent, competent as possible, I wouldn't be doing CrossFit till you puke or, you know, or running ultra marathons or something like that, right? That, that will actually drive down your immunity because you're spiking your cortisol levels because it's excessive stress on your body. If you're somebody who doesn't exercise at all, just start being active, right? Just go for a walk, wash your own car, clean your own house, you know, go like go up and down the stairs. Like it, you don't have to do a whole lot of activity to improve. So it's be active for your fitness level without going so far as to where you're actually, you can feel yourself breaking down, get good sleep. I mean, the contracts, I mean, this is unfortunate. Like we said earlier, life is hundred percent fatal, right? Everybody who got into this game is going to lose the game. We're all going to die. The other contract you know, there's other, there's other contract, right? Like we have, we have to eat and nourish this body or this body dies sooner. We also have to sleep roughly eight hours a night. There's no research anywhere in any culture, any circumstances with any genetic code that shows you will be optimal in less than roughly eight hours per night. 
if you short that contract, if you don't eat what you should eat, if you don't exercise the way you should exercise, if you don't control your stress and you don't sleep well, like you're breaking the contract and you're, and, and you're going to say there are going to be consequences to it, whether it's morbidity or taken out on the Savannah. Right. Right. You're the, you're the weak number in the herd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're the one out grazing in the distance, not paying attention to the herd. And <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, I actually haven't had breakfast. Okay. I didn't have breakfast this morning. I, I had I had coffee uh, with a little bit of heavy cream in it. Yeah. What did you have for dinner last night? Uh, I had steak and Brussels sprouts with bacon. I, you know, get, I love vegetables it. In, get vegetables in now and then. <laughs> <laughs> Single ingredient foods. I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to find more of your stuff, where can they find you? Um, I, I think you're amazing. And I, my suggestion, my general suggestion to you would be to do, to do your social media because people need to hear your voice. And like, yeah. you know. But where can people find your social media? Because, and I would encourage people to check out your website because your videos on this are really excellent. Yeah, so I, I think... Uh you know, I, all of, all of the business efforts from this have all been an afterthought. Uh, I, I didn't like, I didn't pre-design anything. So the problem with my social media is I think my handles are kind of all over the place. They're, they're doc parsley and they're Kirk parsley MD and they're, you know, I don't know. There's all sorts of stuff. So my number one recommendation would be to find me on social media through my website because yep. all of those are listed on there, but the website's docparsley.com. Uh, I mean, you, and you can hear a lot. Uh, I, mean, I have a YouTube channel again. I don't know the, but you could find that off my website as well. Um, you know, uh, you can search Doc Parsley or Kirk Parsley on uh, on um, was it Spotify and find a couple of hundred podcasts I've been on. Uh, you know, and my website has blogs and it has some podcasts, it has some videos. I think my TED Talks on there. Like, you know, there there's. Uh, I'd say that's the first place to go. DocParsley.com. Yeah, Parsley like the herb, P-A-R-S-L-E-Y. Parsley Um, like the herb. Yeah. Well, you're in kind of the same position as me because, you know, my last name is Saladino. Yeah. People always say, how can a guy be into the carnivore diet when his last name is Saladino? And, I mean, I guess you eat some plants, but I've got a feeling, you know, animal foods are a big part of your diet and your last name's Parsley. Yeah, I I, I mean, I remember remember having an argument with uh, Rob Wolf probably – five years ago, maybe, uh, I was like, I was an early adopter of keto. Um, and you know, and primarily because of subjective experience. I mean, I, the, the science, I didn't know enough of the science to be hundred percent convinced. Um, but I was like, for me, the difference I felt in my cognitive functioning by, by running a, you know, ketotic pattern, which was by and large, just sort of carnivorous, right. That's kind of carnivore with extra fat was what I was doing. I remember having this argument with uh, Rob Wolf, or not an argument, discussion. I said, I need you to convince me that I ever need a carb again, like ever, like just convince me. And it went on for hours and it, like you never convinced me. Um, but, you know, I, I, I hedge, you know, there's, there's a little bit of social pressure, social conditioning in me. It's like, oh, well, you know, seems like vegetables hold some nutrients that may, I don't know, really. It's like, it seems like the right thing to do. So uh, that, but that's pretty much, I'd say 80% of my meals are animal products and 
I throw in some vegetables that are heavily covered in other animal products to make them taste good. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. All right. The last question I always ask everyone on my podcast, I bet you're going to have a good answer to this. What is the most radical thing that you have done recently? Radical, like 80s radical, awesome, ah. or however you want to define radical. Man, no, that's a that's a good question. Actually, uh, I I feel like my life has been pretty lame recently. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I, I I don't think I have a good answer. Unfortunately, like I think the most radical thing I've done is allow myself to be controlled by the media over the <laughs> social virus to any extent. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't have a good answer. I've been you pretty good workouts recently or, I mean, nobody can admittedly, this is a more challenging question because we're not supposed to travel and like, where are you going to go travel? Right. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like any good workouts or hikes or swimming or something. Yeah. Like so, um, well, I, so I, uh, I viol I violated all sorts of laws by swimming in uh, Barton Springs. Oh, I uh, love it. A couple of weeks ago. I was like, like, you know what, man, I, I'm really tired of walking around the lake. Like I, like that's something I do. Uh, I work out, my workouts are pretty tame. Like they're, they're pretty consistent. Um, like, like, you know, consistently progressive, but like, I don't take any, uh, I don't, I don't do any big, uh, shake up routines cause I'm too damn old and my joints hurt too much. So <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to just be fit and strong. Um, but yeah, I, I got really sick of it. I said, you know what, I'm, and, and probably the cops, they're going to send the cops to my house when this comes out. But I was like, you know what, I'm, the Barton, Barton Springs is free during the winter, right? And if people who don't know, it's this amazing natural amazing. spring that comes up out of the ground and it's like this 500 yard long swimming pool uh, that right now, especially with not many people going, it's just crystal clear. I mean, you can, you can see to the bottom just standing on the edge. Um, and I was, I was like, I'm going swimming, man. Like, I don't, I don't care if these, like, they're going to arrest me. And so, uh, so in the, in the, in the uh, dark of, in, in the dark of dawn, I, I decided to go do a little swim. I love it. <laughs> you know, it's crazy to me that nature is closed right now. It doesn't make any sense. We didn't get to the article that I was going to share about how the transmission of coronavirus is pretty much unheard of in right. outdoor spaces, but kudos to you for bucking the norm. And, you know, I, I hope you went, I hope you did it naked too. And, you know, like on fire or something, you know, why would I, why would I soil clothes, man? Come on, of course. <laughs> right. And when I, I'm doing the same thing. I mean, I'm just about to, I found one beach in San Diego that's open, not in San Diego in Dana point that's open. And, but I'm, I'm pretty close to, and the authorities are going to come to my house too. Um, I'm going to just have to go do a bunch of, you know, naked ocean swimming to get out my, you know, my frustration right now. And yeah. like, you know, F you to the man for closing the ocean. I, like, I wonder no if I'm going to spread coronavirus by jumping in the ocean tonight. I, yeah. I wonder if you did in the middle of the night, if it, like, if, I mean, it seems like the odds of getting caught there would be super low. Nobody's going to know. I'll talk yeah. about it on Instagram. You guys, if you, if you don't hear from me next week on the podcast, guys, it's because I got thrown in jail for, for skinny dipping in the ocean. So yeah, let me know if you need a good lawyer. <laughs> All right, I will. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, I man. I appreciate it. Really future conversations. Yeah, let's do it for sure. All right. All right. That was a fun one with Kirk Parsley. I am trying to record all of these podcasts in real time. You will know that this podcast was recorded on April the 19th. 
So two days before it got released, we were in real time looking at coronavirus numbers and previous flu numbers. And uh, again, if you want to see the visuals that go along with this, look at YouTube or Instagram for those snippets. Please check out my book, The Carnivore Code, www.thecarnivorecode.com. The Audible's out. Go get it. Audible's out. And uh, also, please leave me a review on iTunes, Spotify, whatever place you listen to podcasts. Help me share this message with more people. I hope you guys are all staying radical. I've got some exciting projects in the work, which I will be sharing with you all soon. But I I hope and pray that you are all staying healthy and happy and that this uh, pandemic will be past us. As Kirk and I talk about, we should not be fearing this. We should be facing it head on with healthy lives and Many of the numbers point to the fact that this is not unlike things that we have seen in the past. So if this information is helpful to you, please share it with your friends. And if this information lands for you, please realize that um, this is not an unprecedented um, situation. Certainly it looks worse in some ways, but uh, in many other ways, it looks a lot similar. So anyway, hope you're doing good. Rock on, stay radical. See you next week.